Have you put your icy glass down? <laughs> Just going to be crunching through the ice. Hello, and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we have an amazing interview that we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Kit Collingwood, co-founder of the public sector reform movement, One Team Gov. Welcome, Kit. Hello. So um, how did you get started in the public sector? I used to work in the private sector, and I started to lose faith in uh, working for profit. It didn't really feel good to me, so I wanted to get into public service somehow, um, and I applied for the civil service fast stream when I got in. What do you think about the fast stream? full of white people. <laughs> the fast stream is excellent. It's getting more diverse, which is really good. And it gave me a nice shoe in into government. But I was pleased to get out and be with more real people. Yeah, I hear um, really uh, mixed reviews of it. So it's cool that you're honest. Started in uh, as a fast streamer, how did you get into digital stuff specifically? Well, I used to work in policymaking in the justice system, and then I worked in Parliament for a little while. And I started to lose faith with some of the ways that things were being run. Things feel, felt really processy, and it felt like it didn't appreciate modern technology at all. And then I fell into a digital role when GDS, the Government Digital Service, was really young. And I was very fortunate to meet a few really inspirational people who persuaded me that digital was the way of the future. People like Tom Loosemore and Mike Bracken. And the beginning of the GDS transformation program involves a lot of people for the Ministry of Justice. And I was very lucky to become one of those people. So I accidentally became a delivery manager at the end of 2012. I was the world's worst delivery manager and swiftly proceeded to do some different jobs that I was actually good at. Cool. Interesting. Why do you think you were the world's worst delivery manager? Just terrible with post-its. <laughs> I'm poorly organized and can't prioritize my time, thus suiting me ideally for the senior civil service. <laughs> and what did you see as the main differences between digital and policy at the time with that transition? The massive one for me was proximity to users, as we would call them, proximity to people on the outside of government. I felt at the time that policy was really divorced from the, the reality of how people lived. It didn't appreciate the service context of how people were experiencing government, which is primarily through services. It lacked empathy in what it did, and it lacked a kind of realistic appraisal of how people would receive that policy. And all of those things had made me lose faith with the way that policy was made. When I moved into digital, it kind of it did two big things for me. It made me able to live up to the values that I signed up to the civil service for, which were public service and trying to make people's lives better. And it made me, it drilled a lot of common sense into me, like Agile, for example, which is just a load of common sense in practice from my point of view. So it re-injected me with a passion for public service that I'd started to lose. Awesome. So you had that passion for public service in the Ministry of Justice and you now work in the Department of Work and Pensions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I work for the Universal Credit Programme where I lead on data. The way that I got into that department was I started to work for Universal Credit on secondment and then I went over permanently and I saw a really big gap 
in the way that government is working with data. And there are loads of gaps about that. But the big one that I saw was that people weren't tying together the concept of data skills and the concept of service delivery. They were still really divided. So the work that I've been doing for the last 18 months or so is to work in the intersection between digital and data. So I build teams that work with product teams to try and make services better through the use of data experts of different kinds. So that's a really new way of working for governments. What are some of the challenges in that space? Human beings, I would say, is the (laughs) biggest challenge. So it's a microcosm of the same problem that I think typifies the whole of what could be better about government, which is lack of empathy between professions. So it's really cool that people have got a lot of pride in the profession they work in, be it digital or data or policy or ops or whatever that is, and that's great. But we don't incentivize people and oblige people to work across those professions. Um, And we miss huge tricks in not obliging people to do that. So the biggest challenge is getting people to empathize with people outside of their own teams, now outside their own professional silos, and realize that basically everybody turns up to work to do a good job. So to me, it's just a common sense extension of the multidisciplinary working that typifies digital, but it's bringing way more people into that. So data people, policy people, ops, legal, and then you create a nice uh, friction between people that tends to get you to a better outcome. What do you mean by that? So in my experience, people, particularly in specialist roles, frequently disagree with each other about A, what they're trying to get done and B, how they should get it done. And uh, what good leaders do in the middle of all of that is to allow that friction to play out as opposed to do to doing what we're often incentivized to do in government, which is have everyone agree with each other. So agreeing with each other is a really cool endpoint, but I think what's a more interesting endpoint is to work to build something that's optimum, even though people see the world in a different way. And that's what a properly inclusive team is to me. That's really interesting. In that space specifically, it seems like DWP are one of the the first departments to be working like that, particularly on the program of work that you're on. So Universal Credit is under a lot of external scrutiny. How does that play through in your day-to-day role? That's a really good question. Mainly, I'm really grateful for the scrutiny. Um, Universal Credit is big and gnarly and complex, and it's right that it should be scrutinized a lot. So we try to see all of the external scrutiny and governance in positive ways to make us better at what we do. So it's cool to have people look in on us from the outside and ask us why we've made this decision or that decision, because it gives us a chance to be more reflective and get better. So everybody who works on Universal Credit is really resilient because we're very used to that kind of scrutiny. But generally, it's seen as a very good thing, and it's a really well-led program. Back in the day of uh, Ministry of Justice, uh, you delivered the first GDS exemplar as a service manager. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and, and how that felt? Yeah, it felt amazing. Really, we were making it up as we went along. And that was the best of it, basically. So the, the amazing thing about that experience was none of the structure that GDS has put around the how to do digital in government really well existed at the time that we did that. So we're talking 2013. Um, So the service standard was just in its inception, 
the career paths of digital data and tech people weren't defined. GDS was very small and had a mandate, but hadn't really grown as a body. So we co-created that with GDS based on our experience of doing transformational stuff in a big government department. So just being able to influence something that was so new and so positive was probably the best bit of it. Another thing which I would say was really cool was I was personally at a point where I wanted to get closer to real people and it gave me a massive opportunity to do that. But the more awesome thing about it was it allowed me to get people out of the organization I was working in, uh, which was the Office of the Public Guardian, and give them really cool, meaningful work to do in the same thing. So the bit that I'm proudest of, of everything that we did, um, was motivate a bunch of people from inside an organization to transform how they consider public service too. Um, And that thing, it still makes me cry if I think about it. But I'm a wuss. (laughs) Crying is totally allowed in this show. (laughs) Totally fine. What do you think has changed um, in the kind of digital government space for better or for worse since then? I love that question. So it's better from my point of view. The the big seismic shift is from the centre out to departments is the obvious one. So when GDS first existed, they were responsible for people like me remaining in government and thriving in government. And I emotionally leaned on a lot of the individuals in GDS just to be able to do my job every single day. And they, they pointed at what I was doing and what others like me were doing sort of pioneer departments like DVLA and a couple of others and said, no, no, what they're doing is sensible. What they're doing is sensible. And they gave us so much air cover inside our own department. So we, and we needed it so much. And I needed to, at the beginning of what I was doing, learn about the basics of how the internet works, you know, what's agile, what are all these different skills? What does a software developer do? And I needed a safe space to ask those questions. And they gave me that. And I'll always be grateful for that good thing since though is that the big delivery of digital transformation in UK government at the moment happens out in big departments and that is really cool. It's cool because it spreads the skills out Um, it's cool because it gets um, product delivery closer to operational delivery which is my massive driver and it's one of the reasons I'm very grateful for working at DWP is because I've never seen a department that's so good at getting operational wisdom into product teams it happens, it's completely embedded as a model and it's expected, it's normalized and that's absolutely amazing. So the best of it is that we don't have to ask GDS how they do things anymore in order to be able to do things well. We can define those things. And the reason that I've stayed in digital or in that in the family of kind of modern tech roles ever since is because it's characterized by optimism and positivity and joy and making things better. And the momentum and motivation you get from a bunch of people who just want to make the world better is just the most energizing experience. And we're built to share. Everybody shares. And I love that. So, yeah, I think I say the best of it is the distribution of that positivity and the skills out to big departments. And what do you think's changed for the worse? Don't ask an optimist this. I can't find much that's bad to say. I think lack of momentum. It's probably the biggest one. So I think before it was, there was more acceleration of doing stuff differently. And now it's more, the pace has slowed. 
So that's good in some ways to let some things mature, but it means that it's, you have to try harder to get new things done. And is there anything that just totally drives you nuts or frustrates you about working in government? How long have you got? (laughs) Oh, bad leadership probably is my bugbear. And by bad, I mean a whole bunch of things, but I would say lack of humility, lack of ability to listen to other people, lack of willingness to learn. Iconography and slide decks. (laughs) (laughs) Is, is quite a big one. <laughs> Overuse of expensive consultants would be another one. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a bunch of things that bug me. I mean, I wouldn't leave the place. It's absolutely amazing. It's the, If I had to name frustrations, it would be to do with the decision-making that comes from lack of confidence and the, and the bad stuff. That yeah, that you had some cool reflections earlier on leadership. How have you found moving into that senior civil service role? Oh, I'm really weird for the SCS. <laughs> um, I've loved it. So I, I think I've I've been a senior civil servant for coming up to three years now. Um, and I felt like a proper imposter when I first started. And then I think at the beginning of being a senior civil servant, I was looking for some uh, abstract like cohort of people who knew how the world worked better than I did. And I've never found them. So I think what I've concluded is the, the SCS... Um, should be respected because they tend to have a lot of experience. They should also be healthily challenged. Um, and it shouldn't be assumed that if you've got an SCS badge on you that you know anything about that, how the world works better than anybody else does. So I'm enjoying making the place different from the inside, I'd say. It's also nice to have more young queer women in it, frankly. <laughs> Happy to add to that cohort. And, and you said that you'd want to stay in government. Uh, what, what inspires you to stay on a daily basis? Delivering services. So it's, it's nice to have a really tangible way to make the world better. That sounds quite self-important, but that is basically how people want to... That's why people mostly get into public service. And I think the most meaningful way you can do that is by frontline operations. So be a nurse or a teacher or a manager in a job centre or whatever you want to be. And if not, get as close as you possibly can to that. And I think working in digital data and tech gets you pretty close and, and you know, it enables you to do really massive uh, seismic things while having empathy with the people that you're serving. And that's what motivates me. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the main exciting event, which is One Team Gov. We know you from setting this up as a co-founder. How did that get started? I spoke at a conference in March 2017. And the person who spoke after me at the conference was a guy called James Reeve. Um, I'd been recommended to hang around and watch him speak after I spoke uh, because he was known to be very inspirational. And I thoroughly agreed. James works for the Department for Education. And his talk was about making policy and delivery the same thing. And I nodded from the back, then I whooped from the back, and then I asked him a question from the back. And in the end, we just ended up having a conversation. And I'm very lucky to count James as a friend now. What he said resonated with a lot of stuff that I've been saying and writing about for a couple of years. 
about empathy between professions. He characterized it in a different way. He made he, his was more delivery focus, and mine was more about um, leadership. And the two things um, worked really well with each other. So we got chatting after the conference, and we said we'd both been in policy profession events because he was on the tipping point of moving from policy to digital, as I'd been, and we'd both been in digital events, and they were both relatively self-congratulatory, and both lacked empathy with other professions, and uh, both didn't really give a shit about how anybody else was working. I'm being slightly caricatured in what I'm saying, but the conclusion of that was, why don't we have an event where we deliberately invite all the major professions in government and ask them how they think government could be better. And that's what we did. So that was end of March, 2017. And on the 29th of June, we had the event that we described in March, which was 200 people from across all the major professions of government and all the grades coming together to talk about how we reform public services and how we can reform the way we work. So make the things we do better, make the way we work better. Let's discuss. And we did it like an unconference, which is an unstructured conference. So it's a conference where people co-create the agenda on the day based on the things they want to talk about. So it's relevant and timely to the people in the room. About two weeks before that, the some of the people in the organizing committee had asked me, what's the legacy of this event? We don't think it should be a one-off. And I thought, yeah, it probably is an ongoing need. So we created a movement out of it, basically. And the way we did that was we got a bit of, we already had a brand from the event. We put some basic principles behind it, which are extreme common sense and nothing more, nothing original. And we committed to getting a regular cadence of meetups in so people could have a space to be weird and new, unique and novel and radical at each other safely. And that's what we did. Can you tell us about the principles? Yep, I won't be, re- be able to remember all seven of them. I never can. Working across borders, working in the open, experimenting with your work, having empathy with citizens, being diverse and inclusive, embracing technology, and probably one other. Have I said six? I always say six, not seven. It's just really sensible working. There's nothing remotely controversial about it, I don't think. But when you live up to the principles, you end up challenging yourself in how you work every day because it's, you know, should I publish this thing rather than send it to somebody via email? It's who could I have in this meeting that isn't quite so white and quite so middle class and quite so empowered? It's how can we introduce ourselves without using our grades? It's why is operations not in the room? We're talking about service delivery. It's all of those things and asking yourself those questions on a daily basis and holding yourself to a higher standard of account. That's awesome. I was at that conference back in June last year. It was an absolutely incredible day. There were lots of conversations that happened, which probably had really unexpected outcomes. Lots of us in the digital space, I'd say, were quite used to that quite free-flowing, unstructured conversation. Did you observe anything from other kinds of people as they had conversations in a different way? Yeah, it was hilarious. About half of those people were relatively young, relatively either digital professionals or digital native and self-selecting reformers, and they were completely fine with it. Other people were very used to introducing themselves by grade and very used to having the opportunity to broadcast in a room of people. It was hilarious to watch those people not being able to broadcast. And the I, I don't believe that leadership is anything to do with grade. 
And it was amazing to see some really inspirational people being heard who wouldn't otherwise have been heard. The value of One Team Gov is difficult for some people to grasp, but if it's nothing else, it's giving voice to unheard people. And that's what we did on that day. I'm really proud of that. That's really different to things we've seen happening before. What do you think some of the outcomes of that event have been that have carried on and created the rolling movement that there is now? It's different things to different people. I mean, the corporate answer I'd give is it's got endorsement from people like the Cabinet Secretary, um, who we ran an event with and for in October, so three months after. So it's become noticed as defining a different style of leadership. It's leadership that's intrinsically non-greatest, intrinsically inclusive, and very humble and porous and open to learning. It's a very listening style of leadership. I'd say that's probably the one of the biggest things that's come out of it is the fact that other people have noticed that it's radically different from what's gone before. The other thing is the cadence of meetups. So whatever it is that resonates with people, it's spread. So we have weekly meetups in London, but they also happen in Bristol, Manchester, Edinburgh, Cardiff, and now Stockholm as well, which is like an outlier, Um, and now kicking off in Canada too. So this idea of something that's intrinsically very optimistic and really inclusive and just allows people to be freely awesome at each other without trying to define how they should be awesome is somehow resonant with people. And it's really cool. Yeah, so there must be a bunch of random conversations that have happened as a result of One Team Gov. Can you give us a snippet of you know the most bizarre of those things? So I think the weirdest trail of things that happened was that through um, One Team Gov, I did a TED Talk about One Team Gov. Some people from NATO came to the conversation. They invited me to go and talk at NATO. I went to talk at NATO about One Team Gov. And then I ended up in a conversation with a Danish naval captain who was asking me about the application of one team gov principles on a submarine while we ate NATO cupcakes. That was probably the weirdest. Yeah, that's that's pretty up there. NATO. Yeah, yeah, it was strong. NATO had assembled a crack team of three queer women on their panel talking on um, International Women's Day about diversity and inclusion in the military. So it's really cool. It was one of the best panels I've ever been on. It was awesome. Amazing. So the next exciting thing for One Team Gov is that we've got the global event in July. Tell us a bit about that. I'm really excited about it. It's 700 people coming together from what is currently 41 countries across the world to talk about the things we talk about. How do we improve service delivery and how do we make the way we work better? It's going to happen on the 16th of July in London. What's really cool about it, apart from just the scale of it, which is awesome in itself, is a chance to widen horizons and appreciate other people's views of the world. So we've got a bunch of countries coming, some of which are expected, but the ones I'm excited about are the unexpected countries. So countries which are, for example, um, still going through a lot of economic growth, countries which are fighting corruption, countries which are not fully democratic yet and are thinking about that. So what I'm personally excited about is appreciating the viewpoints of people in those countries and how does it feel to be a public servant in those countries and what can we learn from them, given that we have a whole lot of first world problems here and what would happen if we listened to people who literally didn't have first world problems. That sounds massive. What's the scale of it? 
Um, so it's 700 people from all different disciplines from 41 countries. So we've got every continent covered now and some really diverse views even within those continents and those countries. So if people want to get involved, how can they do that? Well, we've got a website, which is oneteamgov.uk. Um, you can go there, find out about all of our events and meetups and apply for tickets. Or you can contact us at oneteamgov on Twitter or through our email, which is contact at oneteamgov.uk. All right. You've mentioned a couple of times about the fact that you're queer. Have you always been out of work? Yeah, I've been out since I was... 15. I don't think I was ever really. And um, like, how's that been throughout your career? It's been awesome. I uh, am very lucky to have a brilliant family who didn't give a flying shit what sexuality I was. So as soon as I got a girlfriend, I just told them I had a girlfriend and they declared that they already knew I had a girlfriend because I'd been making out with her while I was drunk in front of them. (laughs) So that broke the ice. Um, My family's amazing. I worked in the engineering sector for five years and I experienced an amount of sexual harassment based on my gender and my sexuality during that time. I learned loads from that. Mainly I learned that I will never be spoken to in ways which are derogatory. So that was a skin thickening experience. Working in government has been amazing. It's the most inclusive environment that I could possibly imagine. And I'm completely free to be myself and I feel really supported. Department of Work and Pensions in particular is a massively inclusive department environment and it would never occur to me to have to hide so I feel very grateful for that and I just want to help other people feel the way I do and have you ever experienced anything like any jokes comments at work or anything like that yeah so occasional ones about my sexuality so none that were kind of seismic to me a couple that I reported is incredibly rare I've experienced far more discrimination based on my gender I identify as a woman and quite young for being in the SCS and I've experienced a couple of things about that. The worst one was it was suggested to me that I might get a better outcome in a meeting if I wore a short skirt. That was probably my worst experience in the civil service. Happy to say that that only happened once um, and it was shut down very quickly by a very supportive boss. So yeah, it it has happened to me. As an aside, what's been worse than sexuality or genderous discrimination has been age, oddly. I've had a lot of discrimination about my age because I look a lot younger than I am. Even. And how do you deal with that when that comes up? Nowadays, like a ton of bricks. I was once condescended to by somebody and I didn't answer back. And I swore to myself that I'd never be spoken down to again. And I've never been spoken down to again. So if it happens now, I just stop the meeting and say directly to the person involved what they've done, which is offensive, and then invite them to apologize. And then I just carry on the meeting. Mm -hmm. But I feel a lot more confident now than I did a few years ago. I never would have done that before. And where it's been serious, I've told HR about it. And where they're not an employee of the civil service, I've fired them. That's my general approach. And do you have any advice for people who might be experiencing that now, age discrimination or or whatnot um, in the civil service? I'd say if you ever have that feeling where you've swallowed down something that you wanted to say, try and find a way to say it, even if it's after the fact, because it can be quite um, cathartic. I'd say make pledges to yourself about what you'll stand for and what you don't stand for and then live up to them. And I'd say find some role models. So who do you find who is awesome, who you know wouldn't take it, 
and then ask them what they would do in that situation. But never, ever don't whistleblow. Never, ever stay quiet, even if you react after the fact. It's better than not reacting at all. The cool thing about the civil service is there's support absolutely everywhere for doing that. Nobody wants to stand for that. Um, so if you whistleblow, you will, in my experience, always be supported. It seems like you've done um, a bunch of stuff to try and make the civil service more inclusive. And that's something that you feel passionately about, obviously. How do you reckon we get towards a more inclusive government? Wow. Be more forceful about the gender pay gap would be an obvious one, but there's nothing original about that at all. But I, it's something I feel very passionately about and I'm really angry about it. <laughs> I'm really angry about it. I'm subject to it and I'm angry about it, even for other people. The next big challenge is about socioeconomic background and the idea that you have to have a degree in order to be able to speak up and be senior in government is just a travesty. Again, there are a lot of role models within my own department for why that's not the case at all. And I'm inspired by a lot of those people. But there is this tacit assumption that you have to be a graduate in order to be able to say incredibly intelligent and important things in the civil service. And that's the next big barrier to break down for me. The next one at the same time is about cognitive difference. So I'm really passionate about leadership that doesn't imply that you have to be an extrovert, she says as an extrovert. <laughs> um, leadership models that allow people to be introvert leaders or leaders with mental health problems, uh, leaders who aren't comfortable standing up in front of loads of people and talking about why this thing is the way forward, uh, quiet leaders, learning leaders. Um, so diversity in leadership in terms of cognitive function is along with you don't need to be middle class to be here, the next big leap, I reckon. Cool. You've talked a lot about inspirational people and inspirational ideas. So to take on that theme, can you recommend for us a Twitter account that people could follow? I'd recommend Cassie Robinson. She's at Cassie Robinson on Twitter. She is, I'm very grateful to say, a friend of mine who is somebody who doesn't think about the world the way anybody else I know thinks about the world. So she's very inspirational. Um, she's got a huge breadth of experience about entrepreneurship, uh, community building, social justice and equality. I love her. Awesome. And what about a podcast as we're on the topic? My favorite podcast is The Minimalists. I've been interested in minimalism for years and years and years, and there's a podcast just called The Minimalists, which focuses on doing less in your life in any way that you possibly can. I am the world's biggest hypocrite for that, but that's why I need the podcast. So I'd recommend listening to them talk about how to reduce stimulus in your life to be happier. Wicked. And probably the hardest question for you, recommend a book. So it would have to be Rebecca Solnit. Um, and the one I would recommend is A Field Guide to Getting Lost, which is one of my favorite books. Um, Rebecca Solnit is my patronus, and she's a philosopher and political activist, a kick-ass feminist, amazing, inspirational woman, journalist, writer, and everything else. And A Field Guide to Getting Lost is about wandering at its heart, and it's about how to find yourself by not aiming where to go. And that's about as cryptic as you can get, but I highly recommend people read it. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's brought us to the end of our questions. Kit, thank you so much for chatting with us. You're very welcome. Anytime. And this will be the first in a series of podcasts from One Team Gov. We hope you've enjoyed it and tune in next time. Do you have any cool takeaways? 
Kit was saying that people interact with government through services. Transformation in government in terms of digital started in GDS. You and me were around at the time when Ministry of Justice was digital delivery team in its own right. And that felt really cool. The big transformation stuff should be happening closer to the front line. The concept of embedding data within product teams. I thought those insights were really cool. How do you look at data science in the context of the welfare state or the justice system or the health service and do that in a way that is still user-centered, even though you've got that extra layer of abstraction? Definitely. The whole what do you measure must be really, really difficult in that kind of context. It's good to have someone there who is properly looking at it. Super impressed by what she was saying about One Team Gov and how it grew from going to conferences, uh, listening to other people and building on that. And I liked how she said that she did this one event and then afterwards thought, oh, this will probably be an ongoing need and networked it from there. I think you really see that happening internationally and it's really good to have a kind of organization that's organically grown out of that to reflect that so I thought that was really really cool and spoke about like the whole of One Team Gov as opposed to a kind of top-down model of you know we will have this conference. One Team Gov global event that's happening in July is really reflective of the fact this is not just a UK or even just a government problem there are all these countries who seem to have caught on to it and been like we should be working like that. So many people signed up to go to it already. It's just wicked. Yeah, it's really cool. And then the other takeaway was about leadership, which I don't think really gets talked about in the public sector. I think there's a, I think there's a big perception that lots of the leaders are kind of stuffy, sort of old school civil service. You have your pipe and push around lots of papers and, and, and there's a kind of stereotype around that. And it was really cool to hear a kind of new vision or model for how leadership can work in government and how you can have a lot of diversity at the top and see that as a reflection of the people who actually work in the civil service. I thought that was really, really interesting. And as a leader, you give space to other people to express what they think about the situations that are happening at the time. I thought that was really good. Her reflections were more about discrimination from an intersectional perspective. Queer is one aspect for which you could be you know, disadvantaged from, but it's also just as much, if not more, about being a woman or about being young or about being perceived to not have the experience that other people have. And it's all of those things combined together, which is basically the definition of intersectionality, right? That's why we've got to show up for each other. Shout out to Leanne. Oh my God, Kit might be the Leanne Pittsford of uh, of One Team Gov. It was really heartening though to hear that she didn't have that many problems being queer in government though. If you just think back to the fact that for a lot of people, they had to hide their sexuality in order to pass those security tests and whatnot. It's just so good to hear that actually we've come a long way since then. It's not a problem anymore. If you want to be yourself and work in a cool and open environment, then come work in government. Classic Kit Collingwood clinking around her gin glass. We had to ask her to put her glass down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that that should become a uh, podcast tradition. Must open with some kind of clinking. 